um, series within our series. We're still within the REAP uh, series, but we're going to call this uh, Christmas for Misfits. And I know none of you are misfits. I, I'm just talking for, for me and maybe somebody out there in the you know, online world that might want to uh, uh, listen. But uh, uh, no, in reality, I think, I think uh, the closer we study the scriptures, uh, the closer we look in the mirror, uh, meaning that this is our mirror, right, the Bible, the more we realize that's exactly what Christmas was, is Jesus came to a whole bunch of misfits um, and uh, rescued us or using us in spite of us and things that sort. But um, it, it really got me thinking about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That's where I come up with the misfit thing, right? Um, used to love that show when I was a kid, and I couldn't remember the, the little uh, elf's name, but I looked it up this morning. Rim, Rimmy, I think it, huh? Hermie? Hermie, there we go. I couldn't even remember from when I looked it up, but... But uh, little Hermie, you know, he wanted to be like a dentist uh, is what he really wanted to be. And so he goes on this journey with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and they eventually end up on this island of misfit toys. And some of them have like one eye instead of two and, you know, all of these different things. And, um, and it just got me thinking that, you know, it's just a perfect picture of, of probably God's perspective of when he sent Jesus. Boy, do they need somebody. And so he sends Jesus into the world. Do you remember all the times that our kids would say, Mommy, look at me, or Daddy, watch me? You remember that? I remember doing that as a kid. Like, I would do that all the time to scream out, you know, to my mommy and just say, Hey, Mommy, look at me. And I would do this backflip, you know, or I would jump off the diving board and do like a 360 or something. And I know some of you are like, you're saying, Mommy, weren't you this little kid? Well, yeah, I was like 18 or something, right? <laughs> but, but the reality is, is, is we don't, I don't think we outgrow that. You know, like when we, are, when we were kids, we would do that. Like we would really do something we thought was impressive. We were going to impress. And so we had this all planned out. And so we were just trying to get somebody's attention to watch us and we would do it. And, but in, in, and I just remember always wanting to impress. Uh, because if I could impress, I always got some feedback from that. Like I got some praise uh, from that. Um, and even today, I, I feel that inside. Um, and uh, so since I, you know, it's my job to be somewhat transparent up here, I, even today, I still feel that way. Like, like over COVID, I remodeled... Jeremiah's upstairs because he was wanting a new upstairs. I said, hey, you help me, we'll do it. And, and so we did. And it's not done, um, uh, to Lori's dismay, right? But, uh, but it's almost done. Uh, and we're going to move into Andrew's room here for too long. But, but even though it's not, like, very well done, I mean, if you're comparing me to some of the other people that are just really good at this, but I'm still, like, I'm still kind of proud of it, and I, I want to take people there. Fortunately, I have Jeremiah to be my tour guide, right? Because as soon as somebody comes in the house, they're just like, hey, you got to come see my room. And inside, I'm just, I'm just like doing this. But, but inside, I'm just like, I can't wait to see what they say, you know? Uh, will they be impressed uh, with what I've done? And I just think that that is kind of our nature, to want to impress people around us to, for something, you know, because we, it feels good when 
when somebody, you know, just admires something about us, something that we have done. I remember in protection, you know, one, one Sunday afternoon it had it snowed, and Lori loves the snow, and I can't remember, we went on a little drive or something, but we were coming back home, and, and fresh snow coming into the parsonage, because we lived in a parsonage, and, and uh, I had this in my head, you know, like, this is going to be perfect. And so I had planned in my head that I'm just going to kind of like really hit the gas, just kind of coming up into the driveway, and then I'm just going to slam on the brakes, and I'm just going to slide into the driveway, right? And so I say, which is probably not a good thing to, to lead out with, but I say, watch this. And the reason I say watch this is because I was fixing to do something impressive, right? And I hit the gas, and then I go to hit the brake, and for whatever reason, I hit the gas again. And then I change, I correct as soon as I can, but it's too late, man. We are sliding, just like the plan, only now we're going too fast and too far, and I slide right into the garage door and the side of the house. And, it, and it's a brick veneer house, and I just put this gigantic, I mean, I knock off chunks of brick and put this little, I moved like the, this, the tube of sixes or whatever that is uh, part of the drive. My attempt to impress did not impress. My wife was so upset at me. And she's just like, what were you thinking? Well... I don't know now what I was thinking. And and the reality is, is impressing others, this feels good. It really does. When somebody acknowledges or notices, but disappointing others or being rejected by others is like the total opposite. It feels like the worst thing you could feel. You know, to be on the other side. We, we try to impress because it feels good. When, when, when we were uh, little, we started this. I mean, just, that's, just like what I was saying. You know, mommy, watch this. Daddy, watch this. And we were trying to do that. And we learned just how good that feels, you know, for people to, that's, oh, that's awesome. That's really good. Uh, nice backflip, Mike, <laughs> or something. But, um, but it, doesn't, it doesn't go away. I think we just continue to do this. It gets more complicated. It gets harder. But I think that this is something that we do even as adults. You know, when you create something out of, out of nothing, like some art of some sort, it, it, you would probably, if this is your nature, it's probably something that you would enjoy and you would do anyway. But it, it loses... It loses something if you don't have other people around to admire it, right? That's one of the things I think that drew us to, like, Facebook and why we're always wondering how many likes we get for this or that is because we wonder how many people are impressed, you know, with my life, with this picture, with this art that I created and I get to share. And, and I just think that that's part of it. You know, finishing a big project at work feels satisfying that you finish it, but it feels, it it lacks something, and and there's something that is added when the boss notices, right? When they take notice and they praise you for it, it feels even better. You buy a a new car, and that feels good to have a new car, but it feels even better when it turns heads when you're driving down the road, right? Uh, Having a nice, fancy house feels good, but it feels even better when people 
appreciate it and notice it. Uh, wearing the latest fancy clothes is nice, but the reason that we wear the latest fancy clothes is because we like to have people, that looks really nice on you. That looks really good. Even if they don't say it, if we could, if we were to sure that they are thinking it, that's all right. That's good enough. Being the best athlete feels awesome. But it lacks something if you don't have a crowd that appreciates your ability, right? Just ask these professional ball players that emptied out the stadium and ask them if they are glad that the fans are back in the stands. And they would tell you by far not. We love it when the fans are there because it, 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 it adds something to what they do. Uh, their gift, their their love. They already love the sport, but it adds something to it when people appreciate it. We get something out of it. Impressing others feels good. It fills our tank. Even though it's just a temporary happiness and it eventually goes away pretty quick and we got to do something else to impress, it, it still feels good. Sometimes our efforts to impress, though, is at the expense of others. Now, I'm trying to lead us somewhere here. And, and I just want us to think about this for a second because sometimes... Sometimes we do something to impress, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, affect others at all. But sometimes our, our efforts to impress uh, is at the expense of others, just like a lot of sports, you know. I mean, not everybody can win. And so if you're really wanting to be the one impressed, you've got to make sure the other person doesn't be the one who impress. Or even at a job, when you have two coworkers that are trying to impress their boss, only one of you and the project done is probably going to accomplish that. And the other person is not going to be noticed. The other person isn't going to feel that appreciation. And, and I think that that's just the way it is. You know, like if you're a girl at school that you're trying to impress... Um, and if there's another person that's trying to do the same thing, one of you is not going to come out on top, right? And, and so somebody is eventually going to feel bad about that. Now, so there are just different things. There, there, it's not always a negative thing to try to impress people, but sometimes it can have a negative, you know, part of it. Next week we're going to talk about just some of the positives, you know, like that come along with that, um, of ways to, in a positive way, try to impress uh, people and our God. And that's really what it amounts to, is, is always trying to appease him. Uh, but I just want to look at this first, just a little bit longer here. When, when we are trying to impress someone at, our, at somebody else's expense, uh, it's because we're kind of in competition, you know, with someone. Um, and we're all after the same thing, and that is we're after being noticed. We're after the notoriety. We're after the praise. You know, the, the uh, uh, you know, just feeling good about the situation. But if we end up coming up short, we feel awful. I was thinking about this, like, just the other day because I was sitting in Ace Hardware and my little brother, uh, Dinger, called me. Uh, Steve is his name. I call him Dinger. I have called him Dinger all my life. But, but he calls me and he says, hey, hey, Mike, can you talk for a minute? And I said, sure. And so he wants to talk to me about a friend of his. It's somebody that he got acquainted with, I think, at the pool hall uh, is from what I get from the story. And, and, and I'm just going to say his name is Jerry. Um, but uh, Anyway, he just says, you know, Jerry, he's, he's somebody that's just kind of down and out. He, he doesn't have friends. He doesn't feel like he fits in much. And, 
And he and I just kind of got acquainted, you know, uh, down playing pool. And he's usually my pool partner or my dart partner or something. And, and uh, he says he called me up the other night, and it was like 11 o'clock at night. And he's, he's, he says, hey, Steve, he says, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling good. And he's like, well, hey, what's going on, Jerry? And he's like, well, I just don't, I just don't, I don't know. I just don't want to, I don't want to even live. And so he's just start talking to him about these, you know, pseudocidal thoughts that he has. And, and he says, man, I just, Mike, I, I just tried to help him. I said, like, Jerry, are you taking your medicine? And he's like, well, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and he wasn't real convinced that he was. He says, well, have you been to the doctor? Oh, they, they can't even help flies, you know. And he just went on to explain to me that Jerry, he's a little bit mentally challenged. Not a lot. I mean, just enough that he never really finished school. He doesn't hold down a job. He, he lives in a little bitty town, just in the middle of nowhere kind of place in Illinois. I mean, there's not even a fast food place in the town, so that shows you the size. And so he doesn't have a job that he can hold down on a regular basis. And some people are really kind to him, and they give him these little odd jobs to do uh, at place. And, and he's just, you know what I thought is he's just having a hard time impressing anybody. And feeling good about anything, right? Uh, he just lost, you know, his, like, purpose. He's just feeling like a total misfit uh, in the place that he lives. And so, anyway, my brother and I were just talking about that. And I, he was just like, what do I do? And I was just like, well, I think you just do what you're doing. You know, what you're doing, you're just, you're checking on him, making sure that he has his medicine. You're letting him know that you care. You know, you're trying to encourage him to go to the doctor, those kinds of things. And that's really pretty much where the conversation went, and we got off the phone. But it, it just left me sitting there at Ace Hardware in the parking lot just thinking about all of this. You know, like all of our lives, we have, we've realized just how good it feels for people to notice us, to not overlook us, people who praise us for little things, you know, that we... Uh, trying to do and do a good job. And for some of us, it's easier than for others of us. You know, for some of us, our, our ability to impress is just not, we don't have as many tools in the toolbox, so to speak. Um, and for some of us, we just are having a hard time finding anything. And what do people like that do? And the reality is, I just sat there and I just thought, you know, what he needs is, he, he just needs Jesus. Like, Jesus is like the answer to everything. He's like, he's like, I don't know, like, like even for Jerry, he is what Jerry needs. He's like the great physician. I mean, he needs a doctor, but really what he really needs is Dr. Jesus, right? I mean, he needs, he needs to feel wanted and to not feel overlooked, to feel loved with this unconditional love, to feel, to feel hope and to feel like he can... He has something to contribute and something to add. He needs a project. He needs, he needs you know, work to do. And that's what Jesus does. I mean, what we're going to see today in the next week or two is just how God uses the nobodies. He uses the misfits. And not only does he use them, like, he, he, he puts them at the very, like, top, like, as if they were the most important characters of the whole story. Like, they were the ones who actually accomplished the great things, the big things in life. And I was just thinking, man, that's what Jerry needs. 
You know, Christmas is God's way of filling the void in our life. For every one of us, no matter where, you know, we come from or what, you know, how the angle for which we are listening to his word. The the, the fact Christmas is, it's it's a way of offering a, a new way to feel good. Like we learned as a kid, kind of an artificial way. Watch me, let me impress and then, like I said, as it gets, time gets on, we still do that, but it, it becomes a little harder and harder all the time to earn that, you know, notoriety, that praise. But what Jesus does is he comes into a person's life and he gives them a new way to feel good. You know, he, he does a much better way of giving us a, a way of finding love and finding, you know, feeling wanted and needed. And so the best way to, to show this, I think, and the best way that God has demonstrated this is um, his desire uh, that he has for making sure that the overlooked don't feel overlooked. You know, the unwanted of the world to feel wanted. Uh, the, the ones who, that aren't necessarily loved and then the, the people that aren't necessarily that impressive in our world to feel like God sees them. Hey, I see you. I notice you. So, in the telling of the greatest story ever told, we just see the, we see the little incidents. That's what I want you to really see is the, the little things. Like there's just these little things that happen, these little tasks, these little people, these little places. And it's all the little things that God uses to bring his son into the world, to announce it to the world. You know, God is, Luke in particular, his account is, is uh, in, in there's nothing that suggests God being impressed with the high and mighty performers. God's just not impressed with, with people who are showy. He, he rather, uh, Luke points out that God is paying attention to the underperformers. That's, that's who he's looking out for. And by doing that, God is including everyone. But he is always making sure that the little guy, the one that most of us overlook, is noticed. And I just want you to look at some of this with me uh, this morning as we uh, kind of get started here. The first thing I want you to see is that God uses unimpressive people. You know, there are many impressive people in Palestine. I mean, there were people all over. There were, I bet if you went to the, the Pharisees, they would say, yeah, you need, if you want to talk to the big dog, you got to talk to this person, you know. Uh, if you went to the Romans, oh, you need to go to Herod, you know. Uh, if, it, you know, there would just be somebody on every corner that would be like the most impressive. And the reality is, is that God picks none of them. He, he uses the unimpressive people uh, to really do great things. The angels, they don't show up, you know, at the doorstop of the most impressive person there. Rather, they go out to where the shepherds, and nobody even knows who is a shepherd because nobody's paying attention to those people. And that's where the angels show up. They, they show up at Mary, you know, this little, this little girl that is betrothed to Joseph, but nobody's really paying attention to Mary because she's so quiet She's sweet, and that's what everybody would say to her. Oh, she's so sweet. But nobody's really paying attention to her. Nobody's really thinking that she's going to do anything besides just raise kids 
right? Not a queen. She's not a queen. I, this is, I, I've told you this, but it, it is. It's like when I began to become a Christian and I was getting into the Word of God and I came across this passage, it, it just, it, it was like my favorite passage and it still is today because it's so encouraging to me. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I've always been attracted to the underdog, right? Like even in sports, there's times that I even almost root, root for the other team instead of my own team just because I'm just like, this is going to be a comeback. And I just like it when there's a comeback, when it's not the person who was expected to win. Maybe because that's just, like, it's the same reason I'm drawn to this passage of Scripture here. I just like that. I love the fact that God is like that too, that he is like for the underdog. And he loves to see people achieve. One of the most encouraging thoughts is just how God uses unimpressive people. It's not really just in our Christmas story. It's just in the Bible, right? Who, who was it that God chose to slay Goliath? It wasn't the thought person that you would have thought. Nobody thought in, that it would have been David, the little boy that brought lunch. But that's who it was. You know, who was it that led millions of people out of Egypt? It was Moses. And the crazy thing is, Moses didn't take anybody with him. He just took him and God. That's all it was. And he didn't, like, do it in a covert way or sneaky way. He just went through the front door and hauled all those people out. But that's how God did it. He chose the most. In fact, what was the Moses that said, you want me? I can't, I don't even have a, a tongue that works half the time. There's no way that I could be your spokesman. And, and Naaman, who was sent to Elisha to be healed by leprosy, he, who did he use in that story? A, a little servant girl that went to Naaman to convince him to go see Elisha. And on and on, you know, you, we just see these kinds of things. Mary Magdalene, it's not the person that you would have thought. But God uses Mary Magdalene in a, in a mighty, great way. And so God, he just convinces us through the Christmas story to any misfit out there that is willing to listen that, hey, he wants you also. He's like looking for the misfits. He's looking for the the, the ones who are being feeling overlooked or just not feeling so special, having a hard time impressing the people around them, he is, he is impressed by you. And he wants to use you. You know, one of the things I see in here also is that God not only uses the unimpressive people in the story, but he uses the unimpressive places. Bethlehem, like, like if you get a map out, you will see Galilee, and that's something that we're all familiar with if we've been in the scriptures at all. And, and, and it's just a region up there around the Sea of Galilee, and there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on in that area. Jesus spent a lot of time there. Just a lot of happening, right? Right towards the bottom part of that, all that happening place is Nazareth, which is where Mary and Joseph were, but because of the census, and we know that they, they uh, got on a donkey, even though she was pregnant, and they went down to Bethlehem to register. And, and in the midst of all of that, that's when she had little Jesus. The crazy thing is, is where they had to go register was a no, a no place. Nobody would have known, you know. It was, it was just 
I don't know, from what I could tell on the map, it looked like about 70 miles away from Nazareth, but they would have had to go through Samaria, and there's a good chance that they say that they probably would have went around Samaria because nobody wanted to hang out there. So that just kind of shows you what side of the tracks that they were on, so to speak, because Bethlehem, there just wasn't much going on. It's right by the Dead Sea. (laughs) That kind of says something there too, doesn't it? Is where Bethlehem was, and and it, it's just, you know, it, at one time, the only thing that it was known for is that it was the original home of, of David's family as well when he was a little boy. Now, when you think of really important places, well, maybe you think Coffeeville is like the happening place, right? But I'm pretty sure that most people in the world don't even have a clue where Coffeeville is. I'm from Thayer. If you think that a lot of people don't know where Coffeeville is, how many people do you think don't have a clue where Thayer is? In fact, Lori used to make fun of me as a kid, or as a kid. See, when I, she met me as a kid, I was like 20-some years old. Um, but she, when we first started dating, she used to make fun of me. So, where are you from? And <laughs> she knew where I was from. But uh, she was trying to point out that it, it was a little town. You know, if I go to Joplin or Tulsa and they ask me where I'm from and if I say there, they have 99% of the people I come in contact have no idea. Now, if I tell them it's on 169 heading towards Kansas City, oh, I've been through there. They still don't know where there is, but they've been through it because they know they drove that road. There's a good chance if I'm talking to somebody in Tulsa or Joplin and they ask me where I'm from and I say Coffeeville, they're still having to say, I've heard of that, but where is that? You see, we're just from a little poduck place. Now, if you were to bring Jesus into our little world, most people would be like, well, the only thing that really is like the place would be the Silicon Valley, right? That's where all of the notoriety people are from and where big things happen. Or New York or, or you know, like Washington, D.C. Now, that's where all the history is, right? Bethlehem was more like a Coffeeville at best. Perhaps it was more like a fair. I don't know. But Micah 5, 2, it says this, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago for the days of eternity. You know, way back before this ever happened, it didn't just accidentally happen that Mary, who was from the north in a way more popular place, came all the way down to this, no, this place that nobody knows even exists to have the child. He had planned that thousands of years ago, that this was going to be where my child was going to be born. Why did God choose that place? Well, he could have chose some other places, but the reason he chose it is because nothing happens there. God just doesn't overlook anything small. In fact, he loves to use the little things in the small things. And that's this way it is. You know, God uses the little places to do his great work, just like he uses the little people to do his great work. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And she brought forth... Her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. 
I mean, the crazy thing was is that God chose the little Coffeeville, right? But he didn't put his baby in the Brown Mansion. He didn't put him in the Best Western. He didn't even put him in the tavern downtown. I mean, he put his child with the cows out somewhere, maybe by Cowan's, I don't know, but by us somewhere out there, I don't know. But that's just the way God is. And God is just making a statement. He's making a point. And the point is, is that he uses un, unimpressive people in unimpressive places. And I just think that that should ring, a, you know, that just should just speak to people who feel a little bit like misfits. That he doesn't overlook. You know, sometimes I think that we can feel like, you know, who am I? I'm just from no, nowhere. And we can feel that way, or maybe because of how we grew up or our home life or something. But I just want to say that the Christmas story is about God not overlooking anybody. He just doesn't do that. He saw Mary in Nazareth, all the way up north, and he didn't overlook her. He saw the wise men far off in a far land, and he didn't overlook them. He saw the shepherds in the middle of nowhere, close to a nowhere town, and he didn't overlook them. God is like over, he's just like scanning the earth, uncovering rocks, just looking for people that would be interested in him. First, our second Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I think the ESV is, you know, he, rain, he, he looks to and fro just everywhere just to find somebody that is interested in him. And he uncovers it. Psalm 34, verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Anybody that cries out to him, it's not like God doesn't hear. He doesn't notice. I think sometimes, though, we think, you know, who, God's so busy. He's so big. There's so many people that he would rather hang out with. Why would he hang out with me? Why would he hear my cry? Why would he hear my groanings and my yearnings? But he does. That's one of the things about Mary when you read her, like her, her song, that she just comes out like, who, who am I that he took notice of me? And that's just kind of what she like starts off like. She's just amazed. But a little bit further in this, it says, But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He blots out their names from the earth. Now, there are so many people in our world that we just put up on a pedestal, and us as Christians, we're just like, that is such a shame that they are the high and mighty on the pedestal, right? God doesn't take notice of that. He's taking notice of the people that just cry out to him. It says, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Does that not sound pretty good? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. I don't know. I wish Jerry, I wish Jerry could read that, right? That he would just know that God sees. This isn't the only time he, he saw... Um, Bethlehem and didn't overlook. And I'm not going to get into this. We're getting a little behind schedule. But, but here, let me just take you to Second Samuel just real quickly since I have them up here. But it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you, re, 
you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. In other words, if you get too high and mighty, God will reject you. If you get too big for your pants, he will put you in your place. And we all know this. But he is out to look for a new king, God is. And where does he go to find the next king to fill? He says, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so he goes to these, this house, and just to tell the story real quick, Samuel gets there super impressed with, with uh, you know, Jesse's kids. And the first one he sees is like, man, no, that's not him. And then that's when verse 7 comes in. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on, his high, on the height of his statue because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I don't know about you, but it's another verse that just super encourages me that God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. He just judges differently than everybody else. And so he just went on through all of these Jesse's kids. And, and, and God says, I, that's not him. But we were out of kids. And if you read the story, Samuel's just like confused. Like, okay, God, we're out of kids. You must have missed. Did we go back through the list here? Uh, I'm missing something. And he asked Jesse, he says, do you have any more kids? Thinking that surely he doesn't, right? And Jesse says, yeah, there's the littlest one, the gangly one. He's out there watching the sheep while you look over all of my impressive kids. The one that's not as impressive was brought back in, and that's when God says, that's the one. Because that's what God does, right? Here's the last thing. I want you to see, God uses the unimpressive people, uses the unimpressive places, but he also uses the unimpressive things and tasks. I mean, think about the things that are at the scene of the first Christmas. You know, it's not a, he, he's, he, he's not in a, a baby bed or a crib. He's in a feed trough, right? Didn't even have to order it from Amazon. It, it's just crazy. It, it was the lowliest of things. He's not swallowing him in something that, that Bonnie knitted together with her hands, you know. Um, he gets swaddled with what they use maybe to wipe off the cows and threw in the corner. Just some rag that was around. And this is where the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, this is where he was placed. Not in a hospital, not with the most modern and the most educated people, God could have orchestrated it that way, but he chose not to. And way before this event ever happened, he orchestrated it this way. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even even unto Bethlehem and see the things which is to come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And Jesus just had all these little things around, these insignificant items and things. And the shepherds, most unimpressive people, were led to this place. Had nothing good to give. 
And he used the task of the shepherds to announce it because what did they do? They went back. We got to tell everybody. We got to tell everybody, and they were the, they were the billboards for the big events. He asked the woman at the well for a drink. And then he showed her living water. And I think it's pretty cool that he used something that was just a a very small thing, water, and asking for a, a very small thing, a drink, to tell her about the living water. In, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his, throne, his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people one from another as the sheep separates the sheep from the goats. In other words, God's saving the big event for later. The big ev- I mean, I shouldn't say it that way because Christmas was a huge event. But the impressive stuff he's saving for later, because you know that that's going to be pretty impressive when, when the second coming comes and the horns are announced and the sky is opened up and he is placing people and he is separating people. It is going to be a, a glorious, that's what it says, a glorious thing on his glorious throne. But it says here, it says, And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So even, even back forever, he already prepared a place for his chosen. Right? Then listen to just what he wants his chosen to be doing. Because what he wants them to be doing is really significant. Because he wants them to be doing the same kind of thing that he does. Just using the little things. And the little tasks. Just like he did. For he says, for when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I'm going to try not to get emotional, but... I appreciated my brother so much that he is just trying to help this guy that most people are overlooking. He, he's not going to impress anybody, but he impressed my brother enough to reach out to him. And I just think that that means, not only does it mean a lot to me, I guess where I get real emotional here is just, I know how much that means to our Father God when we are behaving like this. And he goes on, he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, thirsty, or give you a drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger, welcome you in, or naked, or clothe you? And then I will, and, and, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of, of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Little tasks matter to God. He demonstrated it for us, and then he taught us to do the same. I think the Christmas story is this an awesome story. It, it just... It just reminds me that God is a God of everyone. And God is a God that doesn't want anybody to be overlooked or to even feel overlooked. His message is clear. I see you. 
I'm paying attention to you. I want you. I love you. And God is just looking for hearts that want him back. And that's why, you know, I just, I want, I want Jerry to have the opportunity to just be introduced. Because I know if he was introduced to the real Jesus, he would fall in love with this Jesus. Just like I did. And he would see that this Jesus fills that void, just like he felt the void in my life. Nobody makes me feel more wanted more needed, more loved than Jesus has made me feel. He has, he has been the best thing that ever has come into this misfit's life. And I just know that I have gained everything by hearing the Christmas story and seeing it by the way that God wanted it to be seen. He was trying to not impress the high and mighty, he was trying to impress the, the little people and use that to, to, to uh, encounter their world, to uh, make a difference in their world. He sees you. Let me pray. Father, I hope that just for a moment here that every one of us can just um, feel your love through the Christmas story. Father, I just pray that your spirit would help us to see this. Maybe maybe it's not something new, but, but maybe just something afresh that is a story about how much you love every one of us. And I just pray, Father, that every, everyone here would feel special in your eyes, that your spirit would just communicate that to us. Father, I pray that, um, that we would also feel just this longing and desire to be motivated by the, your actions and to, to want to be like you. Help us, Father, to not overlook the Jerry's of, that are around us, that are within our area, but that we would just reach out with kindness and love, that we just offer these little things just so that your message can continue to be um, manifested in our little world here. We thank you for being such a big God for little people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Little details with big meaning and significance. I couldn't help but think of all the things that I do on a daily basis that require very specific little details. And of course, when I, when I think about, when Mike asked me if I would do this, the first thing I think of, of course, is coffee. No surprise there. But there are so many things within the world of coffee that, like, 
specifically to create the same product over and over and over again. That we're dialing in to make sure that things are consistent. That there's little things that we have to take care of, um, and little things that we that make a big difference at the end of the day. It also reminds me of all the posts that I've been setting. Connor helped us with punching all those posts. He talked to you about that a little bit ago. Um, but where those posts now land, as far as where those holes go, so that the panels can go on there, makes a big difference. Because you're off by this far, you've got a hole in your fence by that far, which is a problem. These little details that make a big difference. And at the table, we find a lot of little details here too. Because by themselves, a cracker and a little cup of juice don't seem very significant. If we weren't here, if we weren't at this table, we weren't talking about these things. Say you went to a restaurant and you wanted to have a date night and you have this expectation of this lavish meal. And that's what's brought to the table. This is no steak dinner. <laughs> and as good as steak and mashed potatoes are, they do not carry and cannot carry the significance that this does because of the value that it was given by someone else that had the authority and the power to do so. Regardless of what he had chosen, we would still find the same significance with it. Regardless of how little and insignificant it might seem, that it has such great meaning in these details. Which kind of sounds like us a little bit. We might think a lot of ourselves sometimes, but in reality, we're not much to look at. We're not much by the things that we do, but because of who we are connected to, you have more value than you could ever understand. And it's not because of you. It has everything to do with who you're connected to. We'll come back to the table. Another detail that I think that gets overlooked sometimes, because we don't really talk about it, Luke 22, a passage you've read a thousand times. But I'm going to read it again. And I want you to watch or listen for potentially a detail that you've missed. Starting at verse 14, chapter 22. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 17, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Many things seem strange to you. We have the cup, we have the bread, and we have the cup again. The first cup is passed around, shared as a community, as we do. And then there's the bread. Jesus is simply walking through the Passover meal, 
And as he goes, he's taking the traditions that the Jewish people have done for hundreds of years. And his apostles recognize every single one of these traditions. I know what he's doing. We're just doing the Passover meal. But then he's adding these new symbolic. This, I'm, I'm talking about myself now. And I'm trying to wrap my head around that. As a Jewish person, what is he talking about here? There's these traditions. There's the symbolism. And as he goes, he's explaining all the details. But we miss something. Because there's not one. But there's two cups. You ever notice that? There's two cups. The first one we pass around and we share as a community. This is what brings you together. This is the unity that this is. But in Passover tradition, Jewish Passover, let's read that section again. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's literally in this passage pouring this cup on the floor. Because that's what they would do. We've got this first cup that unifies us. We have the bread that's his body. And in symbolism of all these sacrifices that we did, we're symbolically talking about this blood that is spilled for you. And as he's pouring this on the floor, he's like, this is no longer the animal sacrifices that you knew. This is me poured out literally onto the floor for you. And without the significance, without the connection to Jesus, he's just making a mess. But because of that connection with Jesus, that mess is your salvation. Little details with tremendous meaning if you're looking for them. He did not overlook any of these. He always found these ways that he could show in very tangible ways that being connected to Jesus is no small thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for not overlooking the little things. That there is such deep meaning and value that you place on Well, us, because of all the prophecies that you fulfilled, all of the countless prophecies throughout the Old Testament that spoke of who you would be, that spoke of the time to come, that we looked forward to in anticipation this Advent season, we are waiting for your coming. And there's these glimpses that you give us in all of the small things. Thank you for this table and what it means. These things we pray in Jesus' name.